Hello and welcome to Order Order, Mail Plus Radio's politics podcast. With me, Simon Walters, Assistant Editor of the Daily Mail. And me, Amanda Platel, Daily Mail columnist. Coming up, Ian Duncan Smith on getting the putrid remains of a chopped up rat stuffed through his letterbox by Corbynista fanatics. So we called the police, they opened it up with us, and there was the uh, rotting carcass of a rat with all the feces and everything else from where they pulled it out in the envelope. Disgusting, dismembered thing, obviously full of disease. Thank God my people didn't touch it with their hands. Sir Nicholas Soames on why Boris should set up a Brexit war cabinet modelled on the one his grandfather used to win the Second World War. Indeed, during the Falklands War, uh, let alone the, the Second World War, is to create a, as it were, Brexit cabinet, which could consist of six or seven people of the most concerned people with this great issue. And working-class Tory David Davis explains why Boris must be a cross between Super Mac and Super Maggie if he wants to be a working-class hero. Boris could be like Harold Macmillan but with Margaret Thatcher's energy. Maybe he's the <laughs> right person to do this. Former Labour Home Secretary David Blunkett says he fears Labour is heading for a 1983-style election catastrophe and he explains how it could recover as it did before. In essence... It's what uh, Marxists have never understood. It's called human nature. We're nearing the election finish line. So how's it looking for Boris Johnson? Is it all in the bag? Well, there's some very jangly nerves at Tory HQ because the, the one, one of the last polls to be done before the vote shows the projected Tory majority down from 68 to 28. Now, the polls have got it wrong with four. It's a question of whether they're right this time. And I think the big thing that Boris Johnson and the Tories will be worrying about, are we seeing, Amanda, the last-minute surge by Jeremy Corbyn that completely blew Theresa May's majority away? What do you think? It doesn't feel like it to me, just observing... Um uh, Corbyn's performance, he seems to have got very, very tired in the last week. And I think that plays into the narrative of him being a bit too old for the job. Um, I, uh, but we, you know, these are uncharted waters. We don't know how many people are going to be um, tactically voting. We don't know how many heartland Labour people that the Tories have won over with their Brexit stand. Mm. We just don't know. Mm. And as, as we, one thing we do know is you can't rely upon the polls. No, but the, the I think in some ways that both sides will feel spurred on by this because the Tories, the thing that they've always been most worried about is complacency. Exactly. Well, there won't be any complacency. And what will spur on Labour is the thought that could this just be a repeat of 2017? So maybe what it's both sides want... I think probably the only prediction I'd make is that I think you'll get a bigger turnout this time for those very reasons. I spoke to Damien Lyons-Lowe, the head of the Servation Polling Company, and they were the one polling firm that got the result of the 2017 election correct. Well, the last poll that we published had a quite hefty Conservative lead over Labour, 14 points. And I suppose what's captured the nations is the YouGov seats projection, which shows that there could be a a hung parliament. Do you think any, any of the incidents in the last week, for example, the, the leaked tape recording by Jonathan Ash was saying uh, Corbyn was hopeless, or Boris Johnson and his uh, gaffe uh, involving the boy who was asleep on the hospital floor, do you think those things can move polls at the, at the final stages? 
Well, it's almost impossible to know if anything specifically cuts through. I mean, I think as a, as a general rule, we can say that nothing cuts through. I mean, take, for example, the, the, the incident you just mentioned. At home around my dinner table, uh, my wife believed that that was fake news, whereas, whereas uh, the, the TV channels have, have told the members of the public that it was not fake news, that there was a boy you, you lying mean, on the floor. Yeah. I, think, I think people believe that most of what they read isn't true, and um, they believe things in accordance to their, their own preconceptions of, of what, what is the truth. And now, can we just come away from, from your polling company and go back to your dining table? What, 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 what is your wife's prediction for the election, Damien? Because she, she may be more <laughs> accurate than you. Uh, uh, she thinks that the Conservatives will win, a, win a, a, a decent overall majority. Good. I'm backing Mrs. Mrs. Lyons low. Damien, thank you very much. <laughs> there have been a couple of um, spectacular gaffes over the years. Uh, do they move elections? We had uh, Gordon Brown called a woman a bigot off, off mic and was caught. Don Prescott punched <laughs> a protester on, on the head. There, and Theresa May, her entire manifesto was a gaffe in the last election. Uh, of course, there have been a couple this week. First of all, we had Boris making a bit of a fool of himself over a, a, pic, a picture of a, a, a boy lying on a hospital floor. You refuse to look at the photo. You've taken my phone, put it in your pocket, Prime Minister. His mother says the NHS is in crisis. What's your response? Uh, I'm sorry, look. I, I, it's a terrible, terrible photo, and, I'm, and I apologise, obviously, to the families and all those who, who, who have terrible experiences in the NHS. John Ashworth, the Labour frontbencher, went one better, and while publicly saying he thought Jeremy Corbyn's the best thing since sliced bread, only a week ago in a phone call, he said Corbyn was abysmal and implied he wasn't safe to have his finger on the nuclear button. Outside of the sort of city, city seats, you know, if you're in sort of small-town Midlands and North... It's abysmal out there. They, they don't like uh, Johnson, but they can't stand Corbyn and they think Labour's blocked Brexit. I, I just can't see... I, I, I just can't see how you don't have a majority, to be honest. Well, the question is, Amanda, uh, I mean, they are quite amusing. Um, will they have any effect on the vote? Well, it doesn't... I don't think they will because it's so close to the actual election. And really, does if Boris being a bit of an out-of-touch, um, you know, posh boy who doesn't care about people lying in corridors, isn't that sort of slightly written into the narrative already about him? It was a bad mistake. You know, it was a really bad mistake from his point of view because any human reaction would have been, oh, my God, isn't that terrible? You know, but he didn't do it. He just blustered. And it's the first time we've really seen him tap dancing, I think, tap dancing and tripping up in this mm. election but he looks exhausted I mean you look at these guys and both he and Jeremy Corbyn look I mean Boris looks so he hasn't you know he's like, he always looks like he slept in his suits but he looks even worse now well there isn't a mirror in this room but I think there's, there's one or two people looking exhausted in here as well <laughs> oh, don't talk about yourself like that Simon you look pretty perky to me over a cup of tea in his Chingford constituency in Essex Ian Duncan-Smith accused Jeremy Corbyn of giving the nod to the vile abuse that Duncan-Smith has been subjected to by left-wing protesters. Duncan-Smith has received a dismembered rat through his letterbox and says a national inquiry is needed to stop this thing happening in future elections. 
and they pick the wrong guy if they think they're going to uh, push me around. It's the nastiest campaign I've seen in 27 years. What, what's, what's happened in that regard? Well, i tell you what's happened. There are lots of what I call very, very ideological people, not from the constituency, but coming in from other places. Uh, they tend to be quite young. Uh, and it's kind of a nod and a wink, it seems to me, from the Labour hierarchy. They deny they're doing anything, but they know very well momentum under that banner goes in and does all this stuff. And so what we've had is we've had um, a death threat at the start of the campaign. We've had threats of violence directly to us. Uh, what, 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 what form do they take? Well, one of them said, I know where your family live. I know where you are. Uh, we had our, our, our offices spray-painted with abuse. Now, that went out on social media. I said on social media, I'm not, you're not going to intimidate me or my people were carrying on. And then most people were agreeing on social media, Facebook and everything else, and suddenly it looked to me like a, a drumbeat going on. In came all of these vile and abusive comments, things like, we should have burnt it down, next time we're going to use petrol, uh, you know, things like, um, uh, there's more to come, we're going to get you uh, a package, which was suspicious, we called the police, came to the door. To the early office? Into our office, it was posted, came through suspiciously. So we called the police, they opened it up with us, and there was the uh, rotting carcass of a rat with all the feces and everything else from where they pulled it out in the envelope. Disgusting, dismembered thing, obviously full of disease. Thank God my people didn't touch it with their hands because, of course, you can get all sorts of stuff, leptospirosis and everything else. So it was, in my view, it was an assault because that had somebody get a disease from that, then, you know, that is part of the reason, that is the reason why. At least one, and I think two women, um, one woman who was uh, doing some delivery for us, a group of men, she clearly identified Labour uh, stickers on their lapels, young men, in a car, chased her down the road, threatening to catch her, deal with her, and smash her telephone to pieces, because uh, she was trying to ring for help when they, they saw her, really threatening, and, you know, no one's ever going to intimidate me, I can tell you. I'm <coughs> still on the streets of... In Northern Ireland, it takes a lot more than a bunch of ideological idiots running around the place shouting their mouths off to make me feel in the slightest bit bothered. So, you know, fine. If they want to do that, it's up to them. But for those who are volunteers, it's, it's awful. These are volunteers who hold other jobs down, and they hate all this stuff. And, you know, this is Britain, for God's sake, the home of democracy and free speech and tolerance. And I think this election... And I, I do put this right at the door of Jeremy Corbyn and all of his cohorts, because these are almost absolutely certain people who are ideologically attached to what he believes in through this momentum group. This election has to be the last time we see this vile, ghastly, ideological abuse that takes place. You know, last night they were putting up posters, fly posters all over the place suddenly. We've got films of them, and it's all gone to the police you know, calling me and others murderers and stuff like this. But how, but, but how, how do you stop it all? Isn't it kind of a product well, of, of, the, of the social media age? How do you stop it? Do we need a, a royal commission into this? or, or I, do, I think what? we do need to look at this now because um, what has happened since his arrival, and it does go along with his arrival, because this wasn't how Labour fought these seats before, you know, when Kinnock had banned most of the, the, the people that we're talking about, and now they're back in, the Labour Party. And I talk to other Labour MPs who are good friends, and they tell me exactly the same thing. You, you, you think Corbyn and Macdonald effectively licensed Well, they people. will deny all this, I know. But my point is, I think these people are all part of that momentum set-up, and that's a big 
bunch of cheerleaders for them, so I'm not making any accusation about them personally, you know, they can deal with that themselves. But this is about fellow travellers who are going in there who are clearly supporters. And my answer to that is, this has got to be stamped out, and it cannot be tolerated. And, and I think, uh, you know, people like this uh, need to be banned from political parties, they need to be taken out, finished in this area. What we've seen is an importation of what I call Venezuelan politics. This is the kind of intimidation and nastiness you actually see in, in a broken economy like Venezuela, which Mr. Corbyn seems to continually support. This is the kind of politics, which, and they shouldn't suffer it either, but it's worse there, obviously, you're dealing with real, real serious life threats. But my point is it starts, when you look at the anti-Semitism, for example, I mean, the phrases now being used on social media about Jewish people are the kind of things you go back prior to Kristallnacht in Germany, and everyone says, oh, well, it's just words. Well, it was only just words at the beginning. And then the words license the violence, and then the violence license the death, and the murder, and the systematic ending. And my answer is, this should never happen in this country. And any of this, no matter who they are doing this, I hope the police find them, and I hope we make examples of these people, because I tell you what, political parties need to root out these kind of people straight away, and I would simply call on the Labour Party, whatever happens in this election, you had better turn on these subgroups and ban them from your party. Amanda, some people are saying this is the ugliest election we've ever had. Do you agree with that? I totally agree. I think that we've always accepted that elections are their battles, right? They're supposed to be a battle of ideas. But I've never said, seen this level of, of kind of viciousness and, and, you know, tipping over very, very quickly in these, these, moment, these momentum-inspired trigger tweets. So if they start up a hashtag, and then before you know it, you've got death threats and, and rape threats against you. It can just be for the most innocuous thing you've said or written about Jeremy Corbyn. And it is, as Ian says, it, it's, it's, this is, it's got so vicious now that you can't have young women being, or young men being chased down the street by a couple of yobs in a car and getting away with it. Mm. I mean, it, 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 it's not a completely new phenomenon. I mean, I, I can remember when the Labour government fell in 1979, it was only a couple of days. It was in the election campaign that Airy Neve was assassinated in the House of Commons. So we... <laughs> It doesn't get much uglier than that. Of course, it was absolutely appalling. It's just, it, I think the thing is with these, the, the attacks now is they're anonymous. You can change your your email address at the drop of a hat. You know, how do people actually detect who these people are? Um, how do the police, are they really going to get involved in this? There has to be more of a kind of shaming and naming within the parties. I think uh, cross-party consensus people damn good idea. Well, I suppose they have talked about having a cross-party consensus on social care, yeah. which is a really tricky a tricky issue. Perhaps the same approach should be, should be given to that. And I think partly it is a reflection of the the passion and the, 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 the strong views that Brexit has generated. And perhaps once Brexit is completed and politics returns to normal, our election campaigns will return to normal. Simon Walters, the optimist. Who would have thought it? So Nicholas Soames was, for a while, kicked out of the Tory party by Boris Johnson for his die-hard Remain views. So Nicholas, who's standing down as an MP, still thinks Brexit is a big mistake. He told me why, in spite of that, he's backing Johnson, why Johnson should set up a Chilean-style Brexit war cabinet, and why Sir John Major and Lord Heseltine are a pain for urging Tories not to vote for Johnson. Well, then the only way to do it in my way is to do it in the way it was done uh, uh, indeed, during the Falklands War, uh, let alone the, the Second World War, is to create 
a, as it were, Brexit cabinet, which consists of six or seven people of the most concerned people with this great issue, that they should run the Brexit business and allow a larger cabinet, the, re the regular cabinet, to get on and deal at the same time with this very important domestic programme, which frankly has been stalled because of the, there was no, Parliament was completely stymied. There was no majority to do anything and we must therefore get on with it. And I think it's very important to separate the Brexit legislation from the domestic legislation, treat them quite separately and really push ahead on all fronts. And if Parliament has to sit for extra hours, then it should sit for extra hours to get this done. And I'm quite clear that that will be the, prior, the Prime Minister's intent. Now, Nick, Nicholas, you, you, were, you were a prominent Remainer in the referendum campaign. You, you have been critical of Boris Johnson in the past. So how do you feel about the prospect of a um, five years of a Boris Johnson majority government? Well, look, I, 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 I am, was critical of Boris's policy on no deal. I was not in favour of no deal and together with 21 others refused to vote for no deal because I believe that would be very damaging to the interests of my country. You were thrown out of I the party. I, I had the whip withdrawn from me and uh, indeed, but later I'm grateful that the Prime Minister restored it to me and others. And I was a Remainer and I remain. You know, I think we have made a bad mistake as a country, I'm afraid. I, I think it's a historic mistake. Uh, and we must get on and do it and we must get on with the business of the government of making its way in the wider world. We are going to have a very difficult time of it. This is going to be a very difficult government, when uh, difficult for the government, and when faced with the harsh realities of choices, very difficult choices, we're going to need a strong government. And I believe that Boris Johnson has it within him, within him to deliver that. And I really think the sort of personality attacks on Boris are are not sensible. We, we've just got to get on and do this. And he is a leader, and I support him very strongly in getting a working majority, as big a majority as he can, so that the government can be, the, the country can be properly, fairly, and justly governed, and not in some frightful quagmire swamp of no majority with nothing happening at all. And, the, and of course, there are one or two uh, fellow senior uh, Tory grandees like yourself, such as Sir John Major, uh, Lord Heseltine, that you know and have worked with closely, who, in effect, are suggesting that Conservative supporters should not vote for Boris Johnson. What, what's your response to that? And does that pain you? Well, it pains me because I am a devoted admirer of Sir John Major, who was a wonderful Prime Minister, in my view, and I'm also a great admirer of Lord Heatherstein. I think personally that I would not personally advise anyone to do anything in this election other than to vote Conservative. I think really it is dicing with far to suggest that it's a sensible idea not to vote for a Conservative. So I, I'm afraid on this particular thing, greatly though I respect him, and great friend though he is, I, I'm afraid I disagree with both. You're in better shape these days than you have been for years. You have a highly developed sense of mischief. What are you going to do all day? Um, I'm going to try and stay out of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping that you don't succeed. So, Nicholas, thank you no. very much indeed. Thank you, Simon. A very happy Christmas.
well, stirring talk. You could hear the old Chichilian tones there, <laughs> couldn't you? War cabinet. I think he's got a point because he's, Boris has got to really get on with this. And, and, and I think, you know, there's a whole lot of deadlines to be met. What would be your Brexit war cabinet lineup? Well, it'd have to be Michael Gove, mm-hmm. um, Dominic Raab, Pretty Patel. But the most important thing about them, Simon, is they all have to be levers. You know, you can't, again, have the problem you had under Theresa May's government where, you know, your cabinet was stuffed with people who wanted to remain. You know, it's got to be people who are totally signed up to Boris's deal and getting Brexit done. Hmm. I think it's a pretty good idea. Hmm. Yeah, I think one or two alternative voices is probably a good thing there, but we'll agree to differ on that one. <laughs> but I think there's, there's I think there's one point I should have pointed out, actually, to Sir Nicholas, that in the Churchill, his grandfather's war cabinet, one of the members of that war cabinet was Clement Attlee, the leader of the Labour Party. Uh, somehow I don't see Boris inviting Jeremy Corbyn to join that war cabinet. We're not quite at that level of war, Simon. Former Brexit Secretary David Davis was born in York, was brought up by a single mother in South London and fought, literally in his case, as he's a former SAS reservist, to get to the top of politics' greasy pole. Davis says the party's success in Labour's Northern Heartlands will change the Conservative Party and its politics dramatically. The electoral base, not so much the Tory party itself, but the electoral base is going to be more working class, people are more dependent on on public services perhaps, uh, people who take the provisions of the National Health Service or indeed um, uh, social housing very seriously indeed, uh, and people who care about social mobility. I mean, a terrible, boring sociologist phrase, what it really means is opportunities for young people uh, from relatively poor or less well-off backgrounds, the the job opportunities, educational opportunities, the the ability to get on in life. All those things are going to matter really uh, uh, practically, not just as a theory, but practically to the people who, who, if we do get elected, who will vote as it. So give us an example. You're you're someone who's campaigned to improve social mobility, and and obviously it was a big factor in your own life. How might a future Conservative government improve social mobility in a way that might benefit these these, uh, former Labour voters in the North and Midlands? Well, in in practical terms, it it means a lot of focus on making sure that uh, the the, the basic schooling is good enough. I mean, you know, we have have struggled very hard the last decade or two to try and improve schooling. We've had a bit of progress, but we're still uh, in the middle rankings internationally on on science and education and maths, the things that are the most important. Um, and we ought to do better on that. So there's, there's, there's work to be done there. But does that mean, um, David, does that, does, that, does that mean grammar schools, for example, or, or how, how do you make well, those schools better? Well, some of it, some of it's better use of technology, some of it's better use... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I favour grammars because I'm not sure that's one of Boris's... Uh, preferences. I think but, Etonians, uh, I think it, it's the lowest form of life to an Etonian if you went to a grammar school, and I, I, I speak as a fellow <laughs> grammar boy. You'll, you'll have to ask him that question. I mean, I think, I think it's one of the interesting ironies of this. I mean, the, the, uh, Margaret Thatcher had great appeal to the, the, the uh, working classes mm. and the lower mm. classes of the, of the North. Um, uh, and before her, probably the person who had most appeal was, was Harold Macmillan. It's an interesting combination. Mm. So if Boris could be like Harold Macmillan but with Margaret Thatcher's energy, maybe he's the <laughs> right person to do this. He I, might be. But, but um, the, the, the work, the, so, the, these work, the working class voters are, are often seen to have a much more traditional view about um, law and order. I mean, historically, they, they were the ones who tend to be in favour of the death penalty. H- how might they shape that kind of policy? 
Well, I think I think it'll affect its priority. I mean, Boris's Boris's argument for more police officers. Um, uh, all right, you know, some may say, well, it's, it's it's going back to where you were before. But frankly, you know, uh, it's it's a very plain promise. Is twenty thousand more police officers that will matter on the council estates? Now, I wouldn't. Uh, I mean, it is possible for a metropolitan politician to. Uh, to misunderstand this, I mean Tony Blair always thought always thought this was an argument for much more authoritarian policies. Yeah. Actually, people who, people who people who live on council estates they want more coppers on the street, but they're also quite smart about having a decent justice system. They're much smarter than I think some people give them credit for. Mm. Um, uh, so so that's that's important. But yeah, it means law and order will be important, no doubt about it. We'll, we'll, uh, it. It will come up the priority levels, and more police will be important to that, and a decent justice system and will be what, important. And, to and, 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 and what about welfare? Because because the, the working class is generally more dependent on welfare than does that does that mean a tougher or more generous policy on welfare? Would you say? Well, funnily enough, there's a paradox because on the one hand, more of them will be more dependent on welfare, but on the other hand, there's nobody more hard nosed. That's probably the right word, but well, certainly no more, nobody more determined to make sure that people who don't deserve the welfare don't get it. I mean, partly because. It's often somebody living on a council estate going out and working a 12-hour day and coming back and seeing somebody next door who's, who's perhaps not working the 12-hour day mm. and, and, and getting looked after. So, so it's, a, it's a funny mixture, but, but I think you'll find that um, they care more about decent levels of welfare for supporting children, uh, for supporting people going out to work. They'll approve of that element of things. They'll approve of the idea that people should have to look for work, should be willing to work, uh, and then, of course, the state can help them beyond that. But, but what shouldn't happen is that, uh, you know, the state props up people who are not willing to work. I mean, that's, that's, sort of, that's very, very plain language approach to things. The other thing, interestingly, about, about um, the, that sort of voter is they're not very PC. You know, they'll say in terms what they think about uh, whether somebody deserves welfare or not. And, and I think uh, that's something we're not perhaps not, not so used to as we used to be. If Boris does manage to, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a one-nation conservative, you know. He believes in uh, social responsibility. Uh, but, it's but, a pity he doesn't exercise he, a bit more of it. Oh well, come on. If he, if he, if he, but if he carries, you know, if he carries that agenda out, with, as I say, with a sort of Thatcherite energy, that might well be the formula to hang on to those seats, and that's what you'll want to do. Whether it's owning your own home and being able to raise your family, those are things which are perfectly natural, decent things that these voters care very much about, and I think Boris might well be the person to deliver it. Ironic, isn't it, Simon, that an old Etonian um, is the man who could deliver swathes of working classes into the Tory party. Finally, we haven't seen that since Margaret Thatcher. I mean, we've just hemorrhaged. I mean, the Conservative Party, of which I used to be a member, um, has just basically hemorrhaged ordinary working people. And if this could be brilliant. It could be a game changer. And I love the fact they're more patriotic. And I love the fact that they're not politically correct, um, like me. Mm. Well, the Conservative Party, of which I've never been a member, <laughs> uh, yes, it, it clearly is. And, and Boris, has, Boris, despite being an old Italian, clearly has got a way of getting through to uh, some working class voters in a way that Jeremy Corbyn doesn't. And, and I, think, I think the other fascinating thing that Davis talked about was that, that uh, Johnson needs to be a cross between Supermac, Harold Macmillan, Tory Prime Minister in the, in the 60s, and, um, and Margaret Thatcher. And, of course, Supermac was one of the sort of the... 
the the old style noblesse oblige Tories, which I think was translates as the knobs are obliged to look after the non knobs, and and Maggie Thatcher, of course, was the woman that allowed people to buy their council houses. Trade unionists were freed from their shackles. And I like the idea of Boris trying to straddle the two, but whether he can do it? I don't like the idea of Boris in a dress, though. <laughs> and I, I think that as a, uh, as a, as a grammar boy, um, if it comes to a grammar boy against an Eton boy, well, in my Slough grammar days, in a, in a back alley in Slough, you'd back the Slough grammar boy against the Eton boy any day. <laughs> and my postscript to that would be, I mean, we know that Boris is fluent in French, Latin and Spanish. He's going to have to brush up on his Brummy and Scouse lingos. (laughs) David Blunkett says the trouble with Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, to quote Blunkett, is Marxists don't understand human nature. Hmm. Lord Blunkett, who's as steely as you'd expect a man from Sheffield to be, says Labour has become too metropolitan and must relearn the language of the working class if it's to have any hope of recovering. I think we need to go back two and a half years. I think people missed the signals that were clear from what happened in the East Midlands and parts of the North. The loss of Mansfield, North East Derbyshire, one of the Middlesbrough seats, and the, obviously Stoke. They, they were indications, as were the polling evidence that was assessed afterwards, that the unskilled and semi-skilled, as was a tradition with working-class Tory voters, were moving away from Labour. They saw it as metropolitan. Labour has a tradition also of fighting the election before last, so we've ended up really fighting the 17 election all over again rather than addressing where we are now. And I think the combination of that with Brexit, quite clearly the get-it-done get message has been very clear, and the plethora of messages coming out of the Labour Party have made it extremely difficult, even for really excellent candidates in, in some of those seats. And is it your, is it your sense that those, those comments that were leaked by Jonathan Ashworth, the Labour frontbencher, that, that la- Labour, the response to Labour is dire and abysmal in their day, is that how you feel? Is that what you feel is happening? Well, in 1987, when I was first elected, I was asked whether I would put my money on Labour winning the election. And I rather foolishly said to a journalist that I wouldn't put my last fiver on it, and it became a cause celebre. So I think anybody at this stage who, um, who puts their head on the block is asking for it to be chopped off. All I can say is that I've been arguing for the last six months that it felt as though we were walking into a 1983 situation. I really, really hope I'm wrong, because there are lots of very, very good colleagues out there, sitting MPs and candidates, who don't deserve to lose. What is the way back for Labour in the long term? How, how do they rebuild their relationship with the working class for a start? Well, it's been done before. Uh, we, we lost in 83 with a massive Conservative majority. took years, unfortunately, to rebuild that. And that is about connectivity. It's about not just talking about the things that matter. Clearly, the health service and the chronic underinvestment in the north of England and the Midlands matter to people. So there is a message to be reinforced there, but it's actually much deeper than that. It's about people like us. It's about people who speak the language. It's about not believing that you can have a retail offer and people would just simply sign up. In, in essence, it's what 
uh, Marxists have never understood. It's called human nature. And, and well, clearly you're referring to J- Jeremy Corbyn. Do, is, is, the, is the heart of the problem going to be about replacing Jeremy Corbyn? Is that really the most important thing that needs to be done to start rebuilding Labour? Well, in 1983, the leadership of the Labour Party under Neil Kinnock and Roy Hattersley um, were able to recapture the Labour Party from what was then a disaster. I don't believe that it is impossible for the Labour Party to do what it has historically done, and that is to fight back and to represent the people of this country. What will happen by uh, the early hours of Friday morning? Well, let's see. But but first and foremost, it's about leadership, isn't it? You, you served under uh, the likes of Neil Kinnock, John Smith, Tony Brown, Gordon Brown. Where, where, where is that kind of leadership going to come from? Well, we do have young, enthusiastic, very committed individuals who, if they show leadership in the future, will be there and will be able to pick up the cudgels. My, my sadness, as this election draws to its conclusion, uh, is just how beatable Boris Johnson should have been. Mm. And if he isn't, then obviously people shouldn't blame other people. They should take a very close look at what the consequences are for the people that we seek to serve. It looks like he's giving a pretty clear message that he thinks Corbyn should go if they lose. Mm. Um, but it is interesting, isn't it, that you have um, people like Blunkett and, you know, in the old days you'd have guys like Robin Cook and, and John Prescott who understood the working classes and working people because they came from there. And yet, you know, Corbyn ought to have that in his DNA. You know, he's a socialist. You know, he he may be a Marxist, but he's definitely a socialist. And I think it's one of the greatest sins of his leadership of the Labour Party is how he's lost touch with his absolute base of the people who would always have, you know, gone to their deaths voting anything but, but I, Labour. I, I think the most damning thing that Lord Blunkett said there was Marxists don't understand human nature. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty brutal thing to say. Doesn't understand human nature. Does that ring true for you about Corbyn? Oh, I think it does completely because there's just this sense all the time that he's in some sort of intellectual, arcane, arcane economic bubble. You know, he really thinks that we can go via a socialist model, via a Marxist model, and just turn the whole world upside down. There's lots and lots of people out there who come from really poor backgrounds, from council estates and all the rest of it, who actually want to achieve something in life. They don't want to be stuck in drudgery jobs all their life. They don't want to be condemned by their, their, the, the place they were born. And Corbyn doesn't seem to understand the, the aspiration of the working classes, and I think Boris does. I, I thought it was when, when Blunkett, his words and the way he speaks, Blunkett being a working-class Yorkshire said, you know, people like us. <laughs> and that's the kind of language that Corbyn doesn't have. And what they're looking for is a kind of a modern-day young David Blunkett or someone like that, and... Who knows where they're coming from? No sign of it at the moment. OK, Simon, what's your topical tune this week? My topical tune is The Man on the Flying Trapeze by Burl Ives. He floats through the air with the greatest of ease The daring young man on the flying trapeze His movements are graceful, all the girls he does please And my love he has stolen away And this was played at the funeral this week of arguably the greatest Westminster political reporter of all time, Chris Moncrief. 
Chris Moncrief reported on Winston Churchill's lying in state when he was nearly banned for life from the press gallery for gate crashing it. And I myself was at, uh, went to see Winston Churchill lying in state, aged 10 years old as a schoolboy. And having worked for a few years alongside Chris, uh, I mean, my and the memory of many others is he seemed to be fuelled by nothing more than endless pints of Guinness. But he was a most wonderful reporter, uh, endless scoops such as the first man to report Margaret Thatcher's, Margaret Thatcher's resignation, rubbed shoulders with Gorbachev, Reagan, and them all. And... He was a really great man. And what I love about this song is it typifies the gloriously quirky sense of fun of Chris. That's all we've got time for this week. Don't forget you'll be able to listen back to this and all our other Mail Plus radio podcasts at mailplus.co.uk or via Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Join us next week for more political chat and election fallout. But for now, that's all from me, Simon Walters. And from me, Amanda Platel. Goodbye. Goodbye.